Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Each weekday morning in the 90s, millions of radio listeners tuned into The Howard Stern Show as they got ready and made their way to work or school. You never knew what to expect on his syndicated radio show that was based in New York and broadcast across the U.S. and even on a couple of stations in Canada. This is a great show. (laughs) This is a good interview. You got Slash, who's the number one rock star. You got girls rubbing you down. I even got a mother-daughter combination. The 90s were the peak of the shock jock format in radio. And Howard Stern, with his mix of risque routines and insulting jokes, was at the front of the pack, blazing a trail for announcers everywhere. There are two kinds of shock jocks. The comedic one, like Howard Stern, usually found on FM hard rock stations. And the political shock jock, like Rush Limbaugh, typically heard on the AM dial. There we go. There we go. With talent, thank you, in abundance. More than I'll ever need on loan from God. Rush Limbaugh in New York, WABC News Talk Radio. I'm Kathy Kanzora, and on today's episode of History of the 90s, we're looking back at the two types of shock jocks that dominated radio airwaves in the 1990s. Before Howard Stern became the self-proclaimed king of all media, he worked a couple of unmemorable jobs at radio stations in Hartford, Connecticut and Detroit, Michigan in the late 70s and early 80s. Next, he landed at radio station DC 101 in Washington, D.C., where he began working with his longtime sidekick co-host, Robin Quivers. Their show soon became the number one radio program in the D.C. area. But in 1982, the pair got canned after Stern repeatedly criticized station management on the air. That opened the door for a move to New York City, where Stern and Quivers joined WNBC-AM. Stern has said management at the station psychologically tortured him over the show's content, which led him to famously nickname one boss Hig Virus, a character you may remember from Stern's 1997 autobiographical movie Private Parts. Stern and Quivers were eventually let go from WNBC-AM when they aired a segment called Bestiality Dial-A-Date. After that, in 1985, they signed on to do the morning show with New York City radio station K-Rock, WXRK-FM. And within a year, the Howard Stern Show was nationally syndicated by Infinity Broadcasting Corp., a Viacom-owned company. And this is when Stern began his ascent to megastardom, becoming one of the most popular radio personalities of all time, pulling in 20 million listeners a day. If you weren't tuning into the Howard Stern show back in the 90s, let me try to describe it the best I can. It was on the air from 6 to 10 weekday mornings, sometimes longer if Stern was on a roll, and was basically a free-flow gab fest. There was no music. It was just filled with irreverent and gross-out humor that included a lot of fart jokes, prank phone calls, crude song parodies, and popular segments like Dial-A-Date. 
And in typical Stern fashion, there were lots of strippers and porn stars visiting the studio. Now, I, you know, I get a lot of requests for porno girls to come down here. I really do. Like, every porno star would come down here because they're always looking for promotion and stuff. We but get really hundreds of requests. We, we do. We really do. And, I, and despite what anyone might tell you, I do turn some down. I turn a lot down, actually. I have some standards. Stern's popular sidekicks included Robin Quivers, who was and continues to be Stern's voice of reason and newsreader. There was also Jackie the Joke Man Martling, who was later replaced by Artie Lang. Gary Bababui Delabate, Fred Norris, and stuttering John Melendez. Plus, Stern had what he calls his whack pack members. They weren't staffers on the show, but instead were wacky or sometimes offensive listeners who became regular guests, like Fred the Elephant Boy and High Pitch Eric. Mario Murillo, professor of radio, television, film, and journalism at New York's Hofstra University, says Stern figured out the formula for success. On the radio, you talk to people individually, one, you know, as if you're talking to one or two people. And, and Stern did a great job of doing that and, and bringing them in to his group of you know, sidekicks that he had in the studio, uh, talking about women's bottoms and talking about you know, uh, you know, fecal matter and talking about all sorts of other things uh, and, and connecting it to celebrity and to pop culture and to pe- things that people are already talking about anyway. Stern was famous for insulting his guests, including celebrities who dared to be interviewed by him. The New York Times has said he had a scorched earth approach to guest interviews, needling them and pumping them for details about their sex lives. Stern's crude humor often targeted women, ethnic groups, and members of the LGBTQ community, which landed him in hot water on more than one occasion. Critics were constantly saying that listeners would get tired of his shtick, but instead, Stern's popularity kept growing and growing, and DJs everywhere began copying his style. Professor Murillo says the shock jock phenomenon in the 90s was essentially led by male-dominated hosts targeting a male-dominated audience. It was sort of a reaction in many ways to the rise of the feminist movement, that it was essentially saying, we got to get our, our country back. Um, you know, we, 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 we don't have to be so delicate. We don't have to be so, and this was before the term politically correct was being used, or woke, as we hear now all the time. But there, were, there was an essential reaction to, to that male-driven, you know, hysteria in many ways, uh, resisting this. And while there were many copying Stern's style, he was the king. During the 90s, The Howard Stern Show was number one in both New York City and Los Angeles at the same time, the two largest radio markets in the U.S. Okay, so let's take a look back at some of Stern's more memorable and controversial moments from the 90s. Beginning with his appearance at the 1992 MTV Video Music Awards, where he was introduced by Luke Perry. I would like to introduce my co-presenter, because no one else had the balls to show up and do it. So, from a land far away and long, long ago, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's a really bad smell. Ladies and gentlemen, Sparkman! And with that, Howard Stern descended from the rafters dressed as his superhero alter ego, wearing a leotard that exposed his butt cheeks passing gas as he made his way down to the stage. That costume, by the way, cost a whopping $10,000. 
Stern has said he came up with the character while on The Jay Leno Show and said it was just a joke, but the audience loved it, so he ran with it. Stern worked with a production company in the 90s to develop a film based on the Fartman character, but fortunately for culture at large, it did not get off the ground. Stern also made news in 1992 when the Federal Communications Commission slapped his bosses with the highest fine ever under the FCC's indecency regulation. The Infinity Broadcasting Corp. was ordered to pay $600,000 in fines related to several on-air comments over a six-week period. Among them was a crude sexual comment Stern made about the Aunt Jemima character on syrup bottles. It wasn't the first time, and it wouldn't be the last time, that Stern's show violated the FCC's indecency regulation, which bans any material that, quote, depicts or describes sexual or excretory organs or activities in terms patently offensive as measured by contemporary community standards for the broadcast medium. In other words, no crude sex jokes or gross toilet humor. The ban was in place between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. when kids could be listening. It was put in place following a Supreme Court ruling in 1978 stemming from on-air comedy routines by George Carlin. But the agency rarely invoked the power. That is until 1987, when a more conservative commission appointed by the administration of Republican President Ronald Reagan initiated a crackdown on obscenity by Stern and other shock jocks that continued well into the 90s. And Stern wasn't just getting in trouble with the FCC. He angered just about every special interest group out there. Thanks in part to his attitude that nothing was off limits when it came to the show. Anyway, Robin, what else is in the news? Well, thousands of mourners have been remembering the woman known as the Queen of Tejano music, Howard. The singer Selena was shot and killed in Corpus Christi, Texas on Friday. Guilty. The founder of her fan club was charged with murder. You're kidding me. No. Oh. In April 1995, on the day of Selena's funeral, attended by over 50,000 adoring fans, Stern mocked the singer and Hispanic music in general, saying Alvin and the Chipmunks have more soul. The Spanish people have the worst taste of music. <laughs> they really do. They don't like death. <laughs> no, they don't like any death. It's all like, you know... All happy. That's because they're all so sad. We have nothing. Our government is corrupt. Let's... <laughs> Let's dance to happy music. <laughs> At one point, the sound of gunshots was even played over a Selena song. No surprise, this infuriated Hispanic communities across the country, and there were calls for a boycott of radio stations that aired his syndicated show, as well as advertisers. The switchboard of the Dallas radio station, which carried Stern's show, was jammed by hundreds of furious callers. Management responded by saying Howard Stern's comments and viewpoints did not reflect those of the management and staff of the station, suggesting any complaints should be directed at Stern. Two days later, Stern went on the air and made a rare apology in Spanish, explaining he is a satirical person and without a doubt didn't mean to hurt Selena's loved ones adding, it infuriates him that Selena's life was snuffed out in such a senseless way. But the apology wasn't enough for some in the Hispanic community, including a justice of the peace who issued an arrest warrant for disorderly conduct in Stern's name in Harlingen, Texas. 
Eloy Cano said he had acted on a complaint filed by some of Selena's fans. The warrant remained in place for a full year, and police could have arrested Stern if he'd set foot in Texas during that time. But he didn't. In 1999, Howard Stern was again accused of pushing the boundaries of decency too far with his comments he made following the mass shooting at Columbine High School. On the day after the shootings, Stern made inappropriate comments to his audience about the young women running from the high school. This prompted calls for Stern's show to be dropped from a station in nearby Denver. An editorial that ran in Denver's Rocky Mountain News stated that crude, pointless exploitation of tragedy for humor is or ought to be beyond the pale in the commercial media. Let Howard Stern make his millions in other broadcast markets. He does not belong in Denver. The matter even made it to the Colorado House of Representatives and the State Senate, which passed a joint resolution that Stern be censured and that he and the general manager of the Denver station where his show aired should send a letter of apology to Columbine High School. The resolution, which was not binding, also stated that the Howard Stern Show should be banned from airing in Colorado. Howard Stern even infiltrated the Canadian airwaves, and it was a rocky ride right from the start. On September 2, 1997, his show made its debut on Montreal's Shom FM and Toronto's Q107, where, incidentally, I was working at the time. And I can assure you, it was a very big deal. Before the show was off the air on day one, complaints were being faxed to Canada's broadcast watchdog group, the Canadian Broadcast Standards Council. Stern didn't go out of his way to woo or flatter his new listeners. Quite the opposite, actually. He promised not to pay special attention to Canada and said he wouldn't visit or discuss its issues. But he had no problem taking shots at Canadians. During the first broadcast heard north of the border, he said, You can judge a nation by the men it produces. And other than hockey players, whores, and William Shatner, you people have not produced a lot. Stern was especially nasty to Montreal's francophones. He insulted them in various ways and accused them of thinking that somehow speaking French is the most important thing in the world, adding that all people in Montreal should speak English. His comments led to outrage within the Quebec government and francophone community, with the province's justice minister even suggesting that Stern could be criminally charged with violating Quebec's hate laws. In Toronto, some advertisers pulled ads from the morning show in that city. In response, Stern held a news conference to suggest that Canadians should lighten up. He said, I can't imagine anybody would take what I say seriously. Hundreds of official complaints were filed with the Canada Broadcast Standards Council. And two months later, the council reprimanded both Q107 in Toronto and Shom FM in Montreal. It said each of Stern's shows in the first week it aired in Canada violated the watchdog's code of ethics with abusive or discriminatory comments aimed at French Canadians and other identifiable groups, as well as sexist remarks or unsuitable language or descriptions of sexual activity during a period when kids could be listening. In Montreal, Stern only lasted a year, getting pulled from the airwaves in 1998 by Shom FM's parent company at the time, Chump. But despite the controversy, or maybe because of it, Stern was a massive hit in Toronto initially, with an audience of half a million. To keep the peace, Q107 eventually ran the program on a delay, which allowed a producer to beep out any offensive comments. Although occasionally some still got through. 
It stayed on the air in Toronto until 2001. By then, Stern's Toronto audience had fallen by 50%, and a decision was finally made to cut him loose. Throughout all of the controversies, Howard Stern was living up to his name as the king of all media. In the 90s, he had two best-selling books. Private Parts came out in 93 and Miss America in 95. Private Parts was adapted into a number one movie in 1997. And there was a televised version of Stern's radio show that ran Monday to Friday on E! at 11 and 11.30 p.m. and then again in the middle of the night. And with his rising popularity, he even ran for governor in 1994 under the banner of the New York Libertarian Party. Let the race begin. It is Howard Stern on the campaign trail where he plans to add his name to the ballot for governor of New York. Who do you want for governor? According to the Washington Post, his platform consisted of just three main points. Reinstating the death penalty, forcing construction workers to work at night, and staggering highway tolls to alleviate traffic jams. He needed 15,000 signatures to get his name on the ballot and was about a third of the way there when he abruptly ended the run. Stern was required to reveal his personal finances and he refused to do so. In 2005, Stern ended his run on terrestrial radio and the next year made the historic jump to satellite radio where he could broadcast uncensored. Over the years, the FCC had fined Stern's show so often, he became known as a First Amendment hero. But things had gotten to be too much following another FCC crackdown that resulted in hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines against Stern's bosses. Incidentally, that latest round of FCC crackdowns began after Janet Jackson's infamous wardrobe malfunction at the 2004 Super Bowl. Tired of free speech battles, Howard Stern signed on with Sirius XFM, where he remains today, earning a reported $80 million a year. And the show can even be heard in Canada. But Mario Murillo says it has lost its shock value. His impact is so diminished, right? Because part of his luster, part of his, you know, appeal was that he was pushing the limit on indecency and, and, and language that was permissible on the air. Once he jumped to Sirius Satellite Radio, uh, where the FCC uh, uh, issues around obscenity and indecency no longer mattered because it's no longer the public airwaves, now we're talking about satellite, subscription services, etc. He was able to speak the same way, but he wasn't pushing the FCC limit anymore. He wasn't getting the headlines that he was getting before. Uh, He wasn't, you know, the same. In 2019, Stern released his third book, Howard Stern Comes Again, in which he distanced himself from the shock jock persona he used to have, saying he couldn't be that guy anymore. His show still includes the raunchy bits, but Stern is now known for his deep personal interviews with A-list stars who open up to the now mellowed out shock jock. During Howard Stern's early days in New York, his number one rival was the gruff, cowboy hat-wearing Don Imus. And the two had an infamous feud. Like Stern, Imus hosted a syndicated morning radio show that pushed the boundaries with obscene pranks and parodies that were often accused of being racist, sexist, and homophobic. And like Stern, Imus had legions of followers. 
The feud between the two dates back to the early 80s, when they both worked at WNBC-AM in New York City. Imus was hosting the morning drive show while Stern was hosting afternoon drive. During that time, Stern says Imus called his co-host Robin Quivers the N-word while passing her in the hallway at the station. And Stern also says Imus called him an anti-Semitic slur. After Stern and Quivers left WNBC for the morning show at K-Rock, they went head-to-head with Imus. Stern would eventually surpass Imus in the ratings, but Imus in the morning was still hugely popular and extremely controversial. So let's take a minute to look back at his rise to infamy. After a stint in the army, followed by a few odd jobs, Don Imus landed at a radio station in Stockton, California. It was the late 60s, so when Imus said hell on the air, he was fired. Next, he moved to a station in Sacramento, where he pulled off a stunt that got him crowned DJ of the Year in medium market radio by Billboard. Imus posed as the sergeant of a group he called the International Guard. And then he called a McDonald's and ordered 1,200 hamburgers for his troops. All of this on the air, of course. All right, we need uh, 1,200 hamburgers. Now listen, on 300 of those, I want you to hold the mustard, but put on plenty of mayonnaise and lettuce. And I don't want any onions on those. And on 200, when I make that 201, I want you to hold the mayo and lettuce, but lay on the mustard and make those medium rare. And on the first 300, if you can cook 275 of those rare with onions and mustard and mayo and no lettuce. You got that so far? Yeah. The stunt garnered national attention, and it actually led to a new FCC ruling. Going forward, DJs had to identify themselves when they made on-air phone calls. But it also ignited Imus' career. He was soon hosting a show in Columbus, Ohio, where he was reaching a larger audience. Then Cleveland, where he won DJ of the Year in major markets. And finally, New York City in 1971, where he began his reign as WNBC's Morning Man. His provocative show, filled with crude jokes and crazy characters, was an immediate hit. And Life magazine dubbed him the country's most outrageous disc jockey. Soon, he was doing stand-up comedy in clubs and cutting albums. One album was named after his famous hamburger stunt. It was called 1200 Hamburgers to Go. In 1981, he published a novel called God's Other Son, which was reprinted in 1994 and became a bestseller. During this time, Ima struggled quite heavily with alcohol and drugs, missing a lot of work and carrying a pistol because he was worried he might get attacked. You see, in 1984, a talk radio host in Denver was gunned down by a disgruntled listener. Alan Berg, who described himself as the man you love to hate, was shot outside his home by Bruce Pierce, leader of a neo-Nazi organization called The Order. Berg, who was Jewish, was targeted because of his vocal stance against anti-Semitism. By the 90s, Don Imus had cleaned up after a stint in rehab and had begun changing the format of his show. Imus figured out he couldn't outshock Howard Stern, so he went in a different direction, getting more and more serious. His show, which was nationally syndicated in 1993, became a place for irreverent political debate. Imus began inviting politicians and pundits on the show. Here, the the esteemed senator from the state of New Jersey, Senator Bill Bradley. Good morning, Senator Bradley. Hey, Imus, how you doing? I'm fine, how are you? Oh, not bad, not bad. Soon, policymakers driving to work in Washington began guiltily switching from NPR to Imus. Powerful people tuned in to hear what other powerful people had to say. 
He was caustic and confrontational, and people appeared on the show at their own risk. It almost became a badge of honor to be chewed out by Imus on the air. And those were the people he liked. If he didn't like someone or felt he had been crossed or disrespected, he was known to launch a barrage of verbal grenades. Imus routinely referred to esteemed investigative reporter Bob Woodward as a dope because he once wrote something mildly critical about Imus. He called Dick Cheney a war criminal, Hillary Clinton, Satan, Oprah, a fat phony, and Rush Limbaugh, a drug-addled gas bag. And one of his favorite targets was then U.S. President Bill Clinton. In 1996, Imus made waves when he spoke at the radio and television correspondence dinner in Washington. Though it was long before most people knew the name Monica Lewinsky, Clinton already had a reputation of being a womanizer. Imus had assured organizers that he wouldn't go there, but with Bill and Hillary Clinton sitting close by, he did. For example, when Cal Ripken broke Lou Gehrig's consecutive game record, the president was at Camden Yard doing play-by-play on the radio with John Miller. Bobby Bonilla hit a double, and we all heard the president in his obvious excitement holler, Go, baby! I remember commenting at the time, I bet that's not the first time he said that. At another point, Imus referred to the president as a pot-smoking weasel. He took jabs at Hillary Clinton's legal troubles at the time, Newt Gingrich's lesbian half-sister, and then-Senator Joe Biden's hair transplant. Imus's performance was considered so shocking that the Correspondents Association wrote a letter of apology to the Clintons. Meanwhile, I Miss in the Morning was heard on over 100 stations around the U.S. in the 90s and simulcast on MSNBC, attracting over 10 million listeners, which was smaller than Howard Stern's 12 million listeners and Rush Limbaugh's 15 million listeners. But at the time, I Miss was considered pretty powerful. In 1999, Newsweek magazine said, The former shock jock who went to college for a week and was once fired from a local radio station for staging an Eldridge Cleaver lookalike contest was now as powerful as a network anchor or CNN's Larry King. He read more books and newspapers than most of his guests and was a formidable interrogator who could cut the powerful down to size. And he was extremely influential. It said he could talk a book onto the bestseller list. In fact, in 1999, he launched his own $250,000 I Miss American Book Awards because he got mad at the weenie elitists who picked the book awards the year before. But there was another side to I Miss that would eventually lead to his downfall. I Miss was often called out as a bigot. He denied it, saying his show made fun of everyone. But looking back, there is a long list of blatantly racist comments. He called Bill Roden, a black New York Times sports columnist, a quota hire, and characterized black PBS journalist Gwen Eiffel as a cleaning lady. Then in 2007, Imus's show was canceled by CBS when he infamously called the Rutgers women's basketball team, many of whose members are black, nappy-headed hoes. In just a week, Imus went from being one of the most popular talk radio hosts in the country to a disgraced man without a show. He did manage to rebound, signing a multi-year contract with the Fox Business Network in 2009 to simulcast I Miss in the Morning from 6 to 9 a.m., with Fox anchors appearing during the program. 
Imus retired in March 2018 after announcing he was suffering emphysema. He died on December 27, 2019, at the age of 79. When Howard Stern was told of Imus's death, Stern bluntly said, I don't effing care, adding that Imus will be remembered as a racist with limited talent. Stern's co-host Robin Quivers also called him a sniveling coward, proving that old radio feuds die hard. In some ways, Stern and Imus were cut from the same cloth. Their roots were in old-school radio where DJs were wacky celebrities whose main goal was to entertain. Then there was talk radio king Rush Limbaugh, who helped to reshape U.S. conservatism. As usual, doing this program with half my brain tied behind my back to make it fair Rush Limbaugh. You can't see it behind there. On WABC News Talk Radio 770 in New York, we'll start in Medford out on Long Island. Jim, hello. Good morning, Your Excellency. Rush Limbaugh was one of the first to turn talk radio into a right-wing attack machine. His rise to fame essentially began in the early 80s when he hosted his first radio talk show in Kansas City. That led to a job in Sacramento, California, where he honed his caustic conversational style as host of a hugely popular regional talk show. Then in 1988, Limbaugh moved to New York City and began broadcasting on WABC, which would become his flagship station as he built his media empire over the next 30 years. He was one of the first broadcasters to have a nationally syndicated political radio talk show. And here's why. In 1949, the FCC introduced a regulation called the Fairness Doctrine, which required radio and TV stations to present fair and balanced coverage of controversial issues by devoting equal airtime to opposing points of view. So if someone made a controversial political argument on the air, equal time needed to be given to someone arguing the opposite point of view. And then this guy came into office named Ronald Reagan, who was anti-government in every step, including in the media. And he thought, and, and he pushed his FCC commissioner and his FCC to essentially rescind the fairness doctrine. That was in 1987, but that movement, that ball was rolling when early on in his administration. That essentially opened the floodgates for political talk radio. Limbaugh was there leading the way at the start of a fresh boom in syndicated radio with his bombastic style that enraged progressives and captivated conservatives, helping bring about the rise of right-wing radio. He gave Americans who felt marginalized a reason to tune in, and all the while, he helped revive AM radio at a time when FM music stations were dominating. Soon, there were dozens of talk show hosts like Limbaugh, both regionally and nationally, using language that had never been heard on the airwaves. But none could compete with Rush Limbaugh. At its height, the Rush Limbaugh show grew to be syndicated on more than 600 stations, reaching more than 25 million weekly listeners. Unlike Howard Stern and Don Imus, Limbaugh had no on-air sidekicks, though he had conversations with the unheard voice of someone he called Bo Snurdly. He also didn't have writers, scripts, or outlines, just notes and clippings from newspapers he poured over every day. In his booming radio voice, he called himself El Rushbo, America's anchor man, and proclaimed that he had talent on loan from God. Limbaugh wrote two books, The Way Things Ought to Be in 1992 
and see I Told You So in 1993, and he had five children's books featuring a colonial-era character called Rush Revere. His legions of devoted fans, who were called Ditto Heads, tuned in to hear his provocative views on, among other things, women, race, and the LGBTQ community. He seemed to court controversy, almost reveling in it. In 1990, Limbaugh drew protests after he aired a segment on his radio show called The AIDS Update. As hundreds of thousands of Americans were dying of AIDS, Limbaugh mocked the deaths of gay men by making wisecracks about the epidemic while songs like Kiss Him Goodbye and Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places played in the background. The segment only lasted a couple of weeks, and Limbaugh later said it was the most regretful thing he'd ever done, but he continued to make homophobic remarks over the years. In 2020, he dismissed the presidential bid of Pete Buttigieg by claiming that Americans would be repelled by a gay guy kissing his husband on stage. Limbaugh developed his own lexicon for those he despised. He called homeless advocates compassion fascists. Environmentalists were tree-hugging wackos. And in the early 90s, he first began using the term feminazi to describe what he considered militant women's rights activists, particularly those who advocated for abortion rights. Limbaugh's rise to prominence in the late 1980s coincided with a national anti-feminist backlash that followed a period known as second wave feminism. And Limbaugh played right into it, making outrageous comments about women. He said they shouldn't be allowed on juries if the accused is a stud. He claimed that feminism was established to allow unattractive women easier access to the mainstream of society. And one of his favorite targets was Hillary Clinton, who was at the time first lady to President Bill Clinton. Professor Murillo believes that Limbaugh's attacks on women amounted to the same type of misogynistic behavior associated with shows like Howard Stern's. So the term feminazi, which was uh, coined by, by Rush Limbaugh, it, it had a political connotation. But how is that any different than the way Howard Stern would talk about women's you know, body parts and, and, and whatnot? That you can get away with calling somebody a feminazi and also talk, on the other hand, talk about you know, a woman's uh, body and and talk about it as if it was a piece of meat uh, and you get away with it. You know, I I think that's clearly, um, that was the culture that was built and it it was quite successful, uh, you know, financially for, for the broadcasters and certainly for the hosts. Democratic politicians and pundits denounced and ridiculed Rush Limbaugh, but his influence on U.S. politics was undeniable. Limbaugh leveraged his popularity into close personal relationships with numerous Republican Party leaders who vied for his support. In 1992, President George H.W. Bush reportedly carried Limbaugh's bags into the White House for an overnight stay that came at the height of Bush's efforts to gain an endorsement from the talk show host in that year's presidential election. His influence was so great that in 1994, a group of newly elected Republican members of Congress invited Limbaugh to speak at their orientation dinner in Washington. They believed his show was a big reason for the party's electoral success that year, and they wanted to thank him. At the dinner, Limbaugh used the opportunity to provide advice to the new members of Congress. He warned the 73 freshmen not to get tricked into believing the media wanted to be their friends. He said, 
You will never, ever be their friends. Don't fall for this. This is not the time to get moderate. This is not the time to start trying to be liked. Limbo was the leader of a radio revolution, ushering in an era of brash and unapologetically partisan political commentary. But it's often forgotten. For a few years in the 90s, Limbaugh also had a TV show. And that TV show may have actually been a precursor for Fox News. Let me explain. Limbaugh's overnight show, which ran from 1992 to 1996, was a 30-minute syndicated series that was a strange mix of late-night monologuing, opinion, and news. And the executive producer was none other than Roger Isles, the future co-founder and CEO of Fox News. Limbaugh met Isles in 1990 and said it was like finding a soulmate. It's possible Isles may have been using Limbaugh's TV show as a test run for Fox News to see if the brand of conservative opinion that was working on the radio could be translated to and expanded on TV. The persona that Isles helped Limbaugh create on that show, something between a commentator, a political strategist, a news anchor, and an entertainer, is exactly the kind of act you see today on Fox News. So it's not hard to draw a straight line from Limbaugh's TV show to talking heads like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity. And Professor Murillo takes it one step further, saying you can extend the line all the way to Donald Trump, who some have called the United States' first shock president. Murillo says Limbaugh and Fox hosts like Sean Hannity mainstream the type of language and attitudes now associated with Trump. The minute you start accepting untruths, the minute you start accepting insults, the minute you start accepting certain kinds of language to describe your political opposition and accept that as mainstream, like that's okay, there's no problem with that, it becomes mainstream, as we saw with the president of the United States, uh, who used it on a daily basis. Limbaugh never brought his show to Fox News, but he did have one more very short stint on television. In 2003, ESPN hired him to be a football analyst, but it only lasted a few weeks. Limbaugh resigned under pressure after he suggested on air that Eagles quarterback Donovan McNabb was overrated, saying, quote, I think the media has been very desirous that a black quarterback do well. In 2012, Limbaugh was embroiled in another high-profile controversy over comments he made on his radio show about Georgetown University law student Sandra Fluke, who testified in Congress about health insurance and birth control. What does it say about the college co-ed Susan Fluke, who goes before a congressional committee and essentially says that she must be paid to have sex? What does that make her? It makes her a slut, right? Makes her a prostitute. She wants to be paid to have sex. The backlash was so severe that it resulted in one of the few instances where Limbaugh felt compelled to issue a public apology. Dozens of advertisers and a few radio stations dropped his show, and several politicians publicly distanced themselves from him and his commentary. In his apology, Limbaugh said, My choice of words was not the best, and in the attempt to be humorous, I created a national stir. I sincerely apologize to Miss Fluke for the insulting word choices. Limbaugh was also known for promoting conspiracy theories, including those about Barack Obama's birthplace. In 2009, he falsely claimed that Obama's health care bill would empower death panels and euthanize elderly Americans, 
And most recently, he amplified Donald Trump's unproven claims of voter fraud in the 2020 presidential election. In February 2020, Limbaugh revealed he had advanced lung cancer. Then a day later, Donald Trump, a longtime Limbaugh devotee, awarded him the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Limbaugh died on February 17, 2021. He was 70 years old. His followers, he was still a huge, he had huge listenership, 15 million per week. Uh, and his discourse, I mean, still having a, an impact on the political direction of this country. And not only him, again, Sean Hannity, Mark Levin, uh, you know, a lot of these hosts on a national level, but also on a local level. And while the right-wing political shock jock format appears to be alive and well on radio and TV, the radio format associated with Howard Stern appears to be on the decline. Mainly because the kind of shocking behavior associated with DJs like Stern, Opie and Anthony, and Bubba the Love Sponge are no longer considered very shocking. It's pretty mainstream now. Daytime TV talk shows discuss celebrity sex lives and use language that used to be taboo on the radio. Saying douchebag once got Stern suspended for a week, but now nobody would even bat an eyelash if someone said the word on air. And thanks to the internet, you can open your web browser and see any range of unspeakably shocking acts that make Fart Man look like a kid's cartoon. Even if the 90s-style shock jog no longer exists, that doesn't mean the airwaves are free of controversy. Just look at the debate surrounding the hugely popular Joe Rogan Experience podcast, which was bought by Spotify in 2020 for a whopping $100 million. Rogan, a former UFC commentator, comedian, and host of Fear Factor, has an exceptionally large following and a growing cultural influence. It's been said that one three-hour podcast with Rogan can lead to more book sales than any international tour, TV interview, or public event. But Rogan's radical belief in free speech and his free-thinking ideology, which has led to controversial conversations with the likes of master conspiracy theorist Alex Jones and Kanye West, has drawn criticism and calls for Spotify to deplatform the show which gets somewhere near 190 million downloads a month. With numbers like that, it's unlikely Rogan is going anywhere anytime soon. And hey, there's one other reason why radio shock jocks don't wield the same power as they did in the 90s. According to a recent Edison Media Research Infinite Dial study, one-third of people 18 to 34 years of age don't even have a radio in their home. Thanks for listening to this examination of 90s shock jocks. If you've got an idea for a show, please let me know. You can reach me through Twitter at 1990s History or on Instagram and Facebook. You can also send me an email at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. I love hearing from you guys. History of the 90s is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. If you're new to the show, please go back and check out some of our older episodes. We've covered a couple of topics mentioned in this episode, including the murder of Selena and the Columbine High School shootings. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, take a minute to rate and review us. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kathy Kinzora. Our producer is Dila Valesquez, and sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more History of the 90s. 